You know, we as a church, we generally will study through sections of the Bible, and we just finished a, a long study in the book of uh, Ephesians. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to start something in the, uh, something in the middle of Matthew, starting in Matthew 10. But we wanted to take a couple of weeks to do something that we do periodically, and that is to kind of, kind of back up and focus on our, our church. What has God called us to do? And our, looking at our mission statement, you know, our, mission, our church a number of years ago formed a mission statement. It's this, to know Christ, his life-changing power, and to make him known. And, uh, and what we're going to do is we want to look at that and to, to study it. And, not, and it's not like that's what we're studying. All this came from the Bible. It's, it came from a study of the Bible where the elders got together and said, what is God calling us to? And we want to be faithful to that call. And every once in a while, now as we start this new year, you know, we thought, boy, it's a great time to come back and renew that and say, this is what we're committed to. This is what unites us. And not because we wrote it, but because it reflects what we believe that God has called us to. And so this morning, we're going to look at that first part of that, to know Christ. And, uh, and we're going to look at it really from what's taught in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 through 30. And even in that, you know, you look at that and say, well, we can say that and it sounds good, but what does it really mean? You know, well, we say, well, it means to read the Bible and to, to learn about God. Well, okay, I can read a biography of uh, LeBron James or Jeff Bezos or, or, or Joe Biden, and, and I can learn about them, but I really don't know them. And we think, well, we know what it means to get to know a friend, to spend time with them, but, but God's a spirit. He's not physically here, so how do we grow to know him? And so that's a challenge. It's a hard question. But in this, what I want to realize is that, again, all of this comes from our study of the Bible, and I think God's Word speaks to this. And so what we want to do is we want to look at this passage, see what it says, Said, okay, how are we united in our pursuit of knowing Christ? What does that mean? So let me begin by reading, as we usually do, reading the passage we're going to study this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn, keep, it, uh, keep your Bible open there, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Reads, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me open it with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to be here this morning. Father, to be able to start this new year looking at, at what Jesus said is most important, where we should start. And Father, I pray that you would bless this time. Father, thank you for teaching me, and I pray now that you get me out of the way and that your spirit would speak through me, and in spite of me, Father, that we would hear your heart not only that we would be drawn closer to you, but in the process, Father, that we would be more united together. Father, we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is New Year's Day. Happy New Year. And, uh, it, you know, it's, how many of you all made New Year's resolutions? Not, not too many. How many of you made New Year's resolutions and have already broken one of them? You know, that's, you know, that, that's what we sometimes laugh about, you know, because we, why even bother? Uh, because we know from experience we seldom really keep it. In fact, I found this little video that kind of illustrates this problem. Maybe you can relate to it.
know, we laugh because we all relate to it. And, uh, you know, how many times have we made these resolutions and then we come back the next year and say, yeah, I promised that. Well, when I think about that, it's should we make New Year's resolutions? Is it a concept that's biblical? You know, obviously the Bible doesn't talk about the new year or talk about calling us to do that, but, but it does teach us that periodically it's good for us to step back, to kind of reassess our life, to take inventory, to, you know, kind of escape the day-to-day demands and think about what most is of, of greatest importance, where we should focus on. And in a sense, that's what New Year's resolutions really are doing. So if there is a question of almost God could come down and say, okay, this is what I want you to focus on in 2023. This is of greatest importance. What would that be if we would resolve to focus on what God says is most important? Now, it's actually not as crazy as a question as it may seem. Uh, Because again, we're going to look with me, if you have your Bibles open, look with me to Matthew chapter 12. And you see this whole passage is somebody's coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, out of everything that's taught in the Bible, if I were to focus on one commandment, one thing to really focus on doing, what is the most important? What should be my focus? And we see in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. Uh, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with, with with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love the neighbors yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He's saying, look, if there's one thing that's of greatest, greatest importance, if there's one thing that if you st- take time to step back and say, this is what I need to focus on, it's this commandment. Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And, and because you can focus on more than one thing, the second one is love your neighbors yourself. Now, both are really important, but I want to spend time, our time this morning really focusing on that first of his commandments, the first thing that he said was the most important commandment in the whole Bible. But again, I want to notice something in the beginning here in the response that's, that's easy to overlook. In fact, let me put it up on the screen. He says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, it's really easy to kind of skip over this first part in verse 29 and go right to, you shall love your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Or, or just to see it as kind of a, a pre- pre- preface, in a sense, to his answer, and then the real answer comes in verse 30. But here's what I want you to see. It's not just a prelude. It's, it's actually the basis for everything that comes after. It's, he starts, before giving us the command, he gives us a foundational truth. In a sense, he's saying, before you could really understand what the most important commandment is, first of all, you have to understand the truth that is behind this commandment, this foundational truth. And what is it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the foundational truth is that we need to recognize that God is God and that he therefore deserves the place of God in our lives. He is the creator and the one true God, and that means as our designer, he defines all that we are, all that we do. Now, the challenge is, this is not the natural way for any of us to think. All of us are born with another way of thinking. We're born with this sin nature, and because of the sin nature, we have this natural way of thinking, of of a mindset, of a worldview, how we view the whole world. And and, and I'm going to call it a secular mindset, but it's not necessarily secular in that it rules out God, or that it even defines that the principles of the Bible are are untrue, or denies those. No, actually, it's possible to to have this mindset and still try to squeeze God into it because it's secular in the sense that it begins with man. 
And it begins by saying, okay, uh, man is the center of the universe. I am the center of the universe. My thinking starts with the assumption that I am what is most important. And so everything else moves around that center. And so the right, as a result, we talk about my rights and my desires and my expectations and my truth. You see, these are the things that I'm going to define as truth for me. Now, we start of that as our starting point. And then what happens is we define everything else around it. So when we have problems, well, what is the problem? Well, my rights aren't being met. You know, my needs aren't being met. My hopes aren't being met. It's not, life isn't working out according to my uh, expectations. And likewise, we define success. You know, well, if we have that, well, when my needs are being met, when I'm accomplishing what I want, well, then I'm successful. And here's the strange thing. It's possible to have this mindset and still claim to believe in God. You see, it doesn't rule out God. And people will often use God in, in the Bible, or more accurately, we might almost say, might misuse God in the Bible to somehow justify this secular mindset. Basically, what it says is that God exists to make me happy. And so I'll hear people say all the time, you know, well, God is loving, meaning that God wants me to have what I want to have. And because God is loving, well, therefore, now I still believe in God, but it's God centers around me. And here's what we need to realize. You know, there's a challenge for us, even as, as we seek to follow Christ, that, that this is the natural mindset until we come to know Christ, and, and then God begins to change that, but yet some of that will still kind of seep in. But the new mindset that we should have that is, that is taught throughout the Bible that, that Jesus here says is kind of the foundational truth to all these truths is that I am not the beginning of the universe. I am not the beginning of truth. No, God is the right starting point. God exists. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, he is God. Everything starts with him. He defines everything. He is the creator and the designer. He is the one that is the absolute truth. So in a sense, we start by saying there is a God and he is absolute. Man isn't the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. God doesn't exist for me to make me happy, to work around my expectations. No, I exist for God. And if I understand that, what it means is that I'm going to try to learn about God and I'm going to learn to align myself with him and his truth. That's what's being taught in Proverbs 9.10 when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, it's not saying that we are fearful of God, that we're afraid of him as this, you know, this great judge that's out to get us. You know, the fear of the Lord means that I understand who God is and who I am in relationship to God. Basically, the fear of the Lord is I know there's a God and I know I'm not him. That's what it means. And it's not only that I know that there's a God, but that means there is a truth outside of me. There is a truth outside of my culture, something that is greater than me and my opinion or the truth of our culture. There is a design to this world, and I've got to recognize that and align myself with that. And the more that I do, the more that I'm going to begin to find wisdom. And I'm going to find knowledge. I'm going to understand life. That I not only know that, but I live as if it's true. But we can't just stop with that foundational truth. But it, then it continues that, it, okay, it starts with this truth that there is a God, but then he calls us to love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. We need to not only know that God exists, but that he's a God that seeks relationship with us. It's a relationship that is based on love. 
that we seek to love him. Now, this is, again, this idea, place that sometimes we can kind of, you know, kind of stumble with this, you know, because even when we talk about relationship, as we said in the beginning, I understand relationship with other people, but how do I have a relationship with God who's not here physically? And some people almost see God as being this, you know, this impersonal force, this power. And well, a lot of religions teach that about their, their understanding of God. That's not the God of the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is a person. He's a personality, but yet he's a spirit so that he's not here physically with us. And so how do we have this relationship with this God who we can't talk to, we can't you know, hug, we can't touch? And here's where God helps us. He speaks and, and reveals himself in the way and oftentimes then reveals it. It's this idea of saying, look, here's this relationship you can't understand. Let me use terms that you can. And he often described our relationship with him in terms of, of human relationships we understand. So the most common is that you see him talking about he is our father, we are his children. And we understand that relationship, and so there are points that we can say, okay, here's, here's how that works. Another one that we often see is that he talks about marriage, that he is the bridegroom, we are the bride, and that there's a loving relationship, and he uses these descriptions. And, and what I'm going to do this morning, because God uses those descriptions, I'm going to use some of those as well, those illustrations to help us understand this relationship with God. So what does he call us to? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Even there, I want to start by saying it's love the Lord your God, not the Lord God. No, it's your God, a God whom we have relationship with, that we not only acknowledge is all-powerful, but that is all-loving and wants relationship with us. And we know that happens through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And how are we to love him? First of all, it says love him with all your heart, with, with all the core of your being, in a sense, so that when you, what does, it, what does it mean to worship God with all your heart? Think about this. When you say that you pursue something with all your heart, you put your heart into it. You know, you put everything that you have into it, everything from the core of your being. And why? You pursue it with your heart because, because it's, the heart is what drives you. You know, you're getting meaning. You're pursuing meaning. I'm pursuing it because, because I believe that if I get this thing, that, that somehow it's going to bring fulfillment in life. Now, this is an aspect of, of a Christian walk that I think at times Christians can miss because we can take passages of the Bible and we can misunderstand certain things. And so sometimes when I'll talk to Christians and we'll talk about what motivates us in our walk with God, some people will say, well, our motive should be gratitude of what Christ did for us and, and, uh, and, and it's duty and it's obligation. And some will think of it primarily in terms of um, self-sacrifice, and, you know, so out of gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross for us, well, we live a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice because one day we know we'll, we'll be rewarded in heaven. And we think of a passage like in Matthew 16 where that seems to be what is being taught. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Now, we're going to come back to this in some, several months in our study of Matthew. But right off the bat, you can look at this and you say, this doesn't seem consistent with the idea of following Christ with our heart. This seems to be obligation. It seems to be duty. But we've got to remember that Jesus, who taught this, is the same one who taught in, in, uh, in, in Mark and also in Matthew that we're to love God. God with all our heart 
And how do those ideas go together? Now, to help put those together, uh, let me, again, use the illustration of marriage. Now, for those of you who are married, you know, uh, this, it's not a vow that I use, but, but we know of this, this vow. It's kind of very similar that what I would do is one of the common vows is that in the, in the marriage vows, we ask, do you promise to forsake all others? Have you all heard that? You know, that's part of what we do. Okay, we're, what's it saying? Okay, I'm committing to this, my spouse, and in the process, I'm promising to forsake all other romantic relationships with someone of the opposite sex. And for the rest of my life, you know, the physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, that's going to be reserved for my, for my wife. Now, let me ask, does a marriage relationship involve a degree of self-denial? Yes. Does that mean that a marriage relationship is primarily defined by self-denial, that I could say, you know, I'm married, and I am just denying myself and taking up my cross and loving Sandy. I'm just, in, you know, I'm just... I mean, if, if I'm describing my marriage that way, what do you think? I've got problems. That's a wrong view of marriage. But yet there is a degree of self-denial in there, but yet what should define me? I love her with all my heart, and there's a pursuit of passion, of intimacy in that relationship. However, in that pursuit, there's also a place of denial. The idea of saying, if I really love her with all my heart and I want true intimacy, true commitment, true passion, the kind that God has designed for me to have, then what I need to do is to say, to say yes to her, I'm also going to say no to anybody else. So I'm denying myself of this because I realize that if I, you know, if I say, well, I think I may be a date. Well, actually what I'm doing now is that I'm denying this relationship with her. But it's not ultimately a, a thing of saying, okay, my, my motives are denial of just duty. No, my motive is that I'm totally motivated of loving her with all my heart, pursuing this relationship, pursuing this greater intimacy. And in that pursuit of greater intimacy, I'm going to say no to other things that would distract me or take away from the bigger yes. Now, this is what God is calling us to, to, to drive our relationship with God. It's not primarily duty. It's not primarily even gratitude of what he has done for us. Those are part of it, but it should never be the primary thing. See, our pursuit of God should be our pursuit of, of love, of passion, of relationship with him. We know that he is the bigger yes. And because we want that bigger yes, we say no to other things that would distract us. Because I don't want to give up this bigger yes. And it's, it's nothing to say no to those other things if I really understand what it means to fully love him. And I love how this is taught in, in, in throughout the Bible. One example is in, in uh, Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you see what it's saying? We're called to delight ourselves in the Lord, to, to pursue him with our heart. The more that we delight ourselves in him, the more that we say yes to him, the more we discover the true blessings that we're created for. So we're to call to love God with all our heart, but also with all of our soul. And when it says soul, I think it's really speaking of emotions, that we love him with our emotions. It's in the Greek language when the soul was considered the, you know, kind of the center of emotions, the soul, the guts. And, and uh, so when they talked about, you know, loving with their soul, it would be very similar to what, how we would use the term heart. And, and so here what we see is that God is saying we love him, we worship him emotionally. 
Now, again, we don't always think of that, but when you look in the Bible, you see there are, there are a lot of pictures of tremendous emotion. I mean, the Psalms, read the Psalms, and you have this incredible book of worship, and it's filled with emotions, you know, with all kinds of emotions, with, with celebration and with brokenness and repentance and, and, you know, desperation. It's an incredibly emotional book, a beautiful book. I think one of the most powerful pictures of, of emotion and relationship with God and worship is in uh, 2 Samuel 6, when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. You know, read, read this description of what happened, of this worship of God, of his relationship. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obadiah to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those uh, who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat animal. He just starts and he says, stop, we've got to celebrate. He continues, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of a horn. So basically what he's doing is he's coming in and, and he takes off his outer garments and he says, I don't want to be free. And so he's, you know, he basically is dressed as a, as a laborer instead as a king. He takes off the, the robes of royalty and he's celebrating with God. And just in case you might be thinking this isn't as wild as it might sound, look at the next verse. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She's looking at her. She's, the, you know, the daughter. She's the former of, uh, the, the daughter of uh, King Saul, the former king. And she's like, I know how royalty should act, and this isn't royal. This isn't dignified. This is undignified. She expected more, him to be more kingly. And so she's despising him. And David realizes, I know the, new, the true king. I'm not the true king. I'm going to be undignified. I'm going to rejoice and let my emotions out. What a beautiful picture. And you look at that and you say, God calls us to that, to love him in that way, to worship him in that way. Not that I'm willing to, you know, strip down or any, you know, but we're not going to do that. But it's, you know, but the idea there should be joy. Now, here's what I want to realize. It's not that he's saying that we should be emotional in our worship, but it's saying that our worship must involve our emotions. And it's not just joy, it's all of the emotions, wherever we're at. And so there are times that, you know, if you come in and you're broken, it doesn't mean you have to rejoice. You just come and you're broken and you're real before God. And if we don't, it's not true worship and it's not true love. That sounds harsh, but let me, let's develop this. Um, can I love God out of duty, out of gratitude? Can I worship him just and do what's right? Okay, let's go, go back to marriage. Okay, uh, should my relationship with my wife include emotions? Clearly. I sh- what if I just love her out of duty? If I came and I said, okay, I'm going to do what's right. I'm committed to her. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to do everything that I'm supposed to do. Let me try to illustrate this. So let's say that I come home one day and I, you know, I come to Sandy and I brought a you know, big bouquet of flowers and I come to her and I said, Sandy, I just want you to realize, um, you know, I just was thinking about our wedding day. I was thinking about the vows that we made and I want to be faithful to those vows and I want to be faithful to the duty before God. And so I just am trying to be faithful and just really try hard. And, um, and so I want to do all the things. If, if there are other things that I'm supposed to do, then tell me the things that I'm supposed to do. But one of the things that I probably should do for you is to buy you things at times like these flowers, and, and here they are. I, I hope you feel loved. 
<laughs> How's that going to go? Probably not real well. And um, now, on the other hand, you know, I can come and I can say, you know, to use this illustration, I'm going to actually do it. And I can say, okay, if I go and I say, Sandy, you know, I just was thinking about you and how much I love you and just the joy that you bring. And I remember our wedding day, and I remember the joy that I have, and I remember being, you know, I just think about every morning being able to walk, you know, wake up with you and look at you and, and to enjoy over the holidays, to enjoy our family together. And you bring me so joy, and I love to see you smile, and I just think that even if I could just do something to make you smile and give you a dozen, you know, a big bouquet of flowers and see you smile, that gives me even great joy. Is that better? Now, I don't know what's worse if I come in and say, I'm going to get you flowers out of duty, or to say, I'm going to get you flowers out of a sermon illustration. <laughs> Sandy's very patient with me. I'm thankful we only had one service this morning because it would have been, <laughs> been really bad to give her flowers in the first service and say, I need them back to give you again in the second. You know, that would have been, that would have been really bad. Now, but you look at this and you say, there's this idea of, I find pleasure in giving her pleasure. Is, that's love. That's what love is. Um, now, now, you might say, wait a second. You're saying you're doing this because it makes you happy. You're giving her flowers because it makes Isn't that selfish? Isn't that being selfish if I'm doing things for her because it gives me pleasure? That's what love is. So do you understand? That's the, that's the height of ultimate love, is that when I find my joy in another person, that's the height of love. And that's not only the height of love, that's the height of praise. You see, when I tell her that I find joy in her, I'm actually affirming and praising her in a no greater way. That's what worship is. That's what our relationship with God is. That's the heart of God and that he wants us to, to fight. literally not self-denial, not just doing what I need to do. But God, I find pleasure in you. I find, I find delight in you. And if I just come, you know, to church and, well, we sing songs and, and, well, I do this and I go to Bible study because this is what I know I'm supposed to do. It's basically coming and saying, okay, God, I know that I was supposed to bring you some flowers and, and I hope you feel happy. I did my duty today and... You see, that's not what God wants. God wants us to love with all our heart, with all our soul, to find pleasure in him, to literally pursue him because that's what we believe will bring us the greatest joy and pleasure, to love him with our heart, with all our soul, but also with our mind, our intellect. See, when we, when we think about it, God reveals himself, really first and foremost, to our intellect. The Bible is a book that is written that tells us about who God is. And when we think about how we're to approach God, there's a sense that there's where we start. Now, we've got to go beyond that. If all I have is the right thoughts about God, if all I do is I come and I proclaim and you know, read the right songs I've just, you know, or, or words and I say the right things, and there's no emotion in that, that's not true worship. That's just, do, again, doing duty. And, and it's possible that you know, people, you know, we can come and we can worship God with our minds but not our hearts. And I think about even how Jesus gave a warning of this, and this is what a lot of the religious people of his day did. Look at what he said in Matthew 15. He says, these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so they, they got the right mindset, but their, their heart isn't there. And he says, no, I, I, see, I don't want that to be God says, well, you know, your worship is vain. You're right, but it's, but it's vain. It's empty. 
See, but on the other hand, we've got to realize that I can come with the emotions, and if my facts are wrong, if my truth is wrong, there's a sense that the Bible, that, that worship and relationship with God is both emotion and, 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 and intellect. Somebody said it's, it's light and heat, and this, I love that. But he says the light should always precede the heat. If the one comes first, it's first of all, what do I know about God, and that should engender emotion. Now, the problem is, is that if I come and I start with the emotion, here's my experience and here's what God did. The fact is that I can have emotion that misdirects me, that leads me down the wrong path. And, and I see a lot of people do that. Here's my experience with God. And next, next, next thing I know, my experience and my perception is, is my truth, but it's not the truth of who God is. And for me to really have a relationship with God, I have to worship him, love him for who he is. It's just like if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Mike, I really want to get to know you. You sound like such an interesting guy. Man, I really want to hear about your NBA career and all the things that you did when you were in the NBA and, and you know, all the, you know, the stuff that you did when you started that one company and how you sold it. Man, you sound like such an interesting guy. And I'm sitting there saying, I do. I would really like to meet that person too because that's not me. But if you say, I really want to hear this story and that's who you want and demand in a sense to know, you'll never know me because that's not who I am. To have a relationship with me, you can't, it can't be with who you want me to be. It's got to be with who I am. And that's the same thing in our relationship with God. What has the Bible said about him? Do I love God for who he is, for who he's revealed himself to be? And love him with, with, in my mind, but in a way that also engages my emotion. And when I do that, ultimately, it's then wrapped up with going to even to our will. That he calls us to love him with all our strength, with all of our will that we love him in a way that is translated in the way that we act. So again, let's think in the context of human relationships. I remember a number of years ago when I was down in Florida, I had this couple come into my office and, and they were having relational problems. They were thinking about getting married and they said, well, we're having problems. We need to, thought we'd come in and meet with a pastor and see if we could help us. So tell me about, and, tell, and, and so the guy's like, oh, I love her so much and this and that. And I turned to her and he said, well, the biggest problem is that he just cheated on me with my best friend. Okay, that's a problem, you know, and so, so tell me, I turned back to him, and this was his response. I did that to prove to myself that I really loved you. You see, I just wanted to make sure that, that I could have had her, but I, I tried her, but I really, it just proves to me that I really want you more than anybody else. And I'm sitting there, you know, to her, okay, run away, run away, you know, this is, this is not good. Why? Because you're telling me that you love her, but your actions prove that you don't. That here, if you're in engagement and you're trying to prove yourself and you're still now cheating with the best friend, your actions are saying, no, you are not important. You are not a priority. And what we need to realize is in our relationship with God, our, 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 if we really love God, if we really make him a priority, if we really make him God over our life, that means that it will look like he is a priority. It will look like that he, is, that he is God over life. We will, in a sense, you know, make his word, his teaching, the, the, um, the truth that defines us. We will try to align ourselves with him. It will dramatically influence the way that we live. And so when we think about that, even what, what does uh, the Bible say? It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is talking about this and saying, no, you can say that you love me, but if you really love me, then it's going to show in your actions. And if you come to church and you're excited and you talk, or if you have the right theology, but your life isn't changing, 
then I really have to ask, have you really made me your savior? Have you made me the Lord of your life? Are you really treating me as God? See, the old question is, are we making him God? And I love even what it says about this in Psalm 95. The Lord is a great God, a, king, a great king above all gods. Now, what he's saying here is not that there are a lot of gods and this is one God that is amongst the others. David's point is that we all ultimately worship something. There's something in our life. If you look at your life, you know, what are you spending your time on? What do you dream about? What, you know, what is defining your value system? Ultimately, all of us ascribe ultimate value to something, and we act on that by our pursuit of that thing. And what is that thing? What is the true God, the great God in your life? And it may not be something that you call, in terms of God, religious, you know, but boy, if it's the pursuit of money, if it's the pursuit of, you know, of, of, of pleasure, if it's the pursuit of whatever it would be, you see, then that's what we're putting our ultimate God. On the other hand, if I really love God with all my heart, with all my core being, with all my soul, with my emotions, with my intellect and what I know about him, then I'm going to translate that into saying, okay, this is how I'm going to try to grow in that relationship. This is what I'm going to try to do in this coming year to be able to say, how do I make that a priority? You know, how do I, and we're going to be talking even in the next couple of weeks about what's that look like? And, and it might start by saying, okay, I'm going to try to spend a little bit more time than I do reading the Bible. And, you know, if you don't spend any time, try five minutes a day. You know, if you spend five minutes, try to go to 10 minutes a day. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about prayer. Try to pray when we do the week of prayer in a couple, couple of weeks. Try that out. Try to let God stretch you and learn to pray in a different way. We're going to talk next week about the importance of growing in the context of community. If you're not in some kind of community group, hey, take the risk. Come out, join one, try one. Try to get connected to other believers who will help you grow in your walk with Christ. Because ultimately, if I love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my, with all my mind, it will translate with my strength. It will translate into my activities. But ultimately, we're going to end up this morning with communion and it just comes back to a really basic principle. And that is, God has called us to love him because he first loved us. That it is not a call to say, okay, God, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to somehow try to earn, I'm going to try to get your good graces. Now, the Bible says in Romans that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were acting as God's enemies. And God pursued us even when we were rejecting him. And now he calls us to love him, not so that we can earn the relationship, even in this command. No, the Lord is your God because we have this relationship. It starts with, do you have that relationship? We're all naturally separated from God by our sin. We celebrate at communion, this remembrance that, that we have relationship with God offered to us through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins who came and took the penalty of our sin, took our, his, our sin upon himself, paid for that penalty at the cross. So all those who trust in him, who trust in what he has done, not trying to be good enough, but acknowledging, God, I'm a sinner, I need your forgiveness, trust in what he has done. He forgives our sin, he gives us relationship with him. He loves us that dearly. And the Christian walk starts by acknowledging that need and asking God to forgive us. And then as we understand that, it means now that I know that I've been loved, that I'm dearly loved, I'm not trying to earn this relationship, I'm responding out of the way that I have been loved. Now I love him. 
because I realize that I will never be loved more dearly. And, I, and it's in my love of him that I will find the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate meaning, significance that, that we would have. That's why we know what we love because he first loved us. It's in response to him. Have you ever trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? I hope and pray you do so, even this morning. In a moment as we take communion, what that means, it's also an invitation of God's grace to each one of us.